Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, once more we ask you to fill us with your spirit, that the word that we have heard this day would be planted deep within, and that through that planting, you would bring forth a fruitful harvest in our lives, that you would draw us near to yourself as you have drawn near to us and guide us in all that we do. Grant forevermore an increase in our love for you, that all of our thoughts and all of our actions would more and more become that which pleases you in Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our passage today is one of those that most assuredly puts the church on the offensive against the world itself, against the culture that we live in, against those who reject the faith. Paul lays it out here, looking at the culture that he existed in, looking at that Roman culture that's been influenced by the Greek culture, this that we often just refer to as pagan culture, and calls to the believers in Ephesus to be sure to not follow the ways of the world. He's been talking about this since chapter 4. And as we enter into chapter 5 here at verse 3, he begins to get into the particulars of the struggles in that culture. One of the things that I never realized was just how licentious the Roman and Greek cultures really were. Years and years ago, when they first dug up Pompeii, the Roman city that was buried when the volcano, when Mount Vesuvius exploded and covered that whole place in ash and just flooded it with lava and just was so fast that people were literally caught running through the streets and fossilized instantaneously. The things that they discovered there made people blush. They all thought, oh, well, Pompeii was probably just an outlier, the Las Vegas of the time. But the reality was, as they've done more and more archaeological research throughout these old Roman provinces, they've come to discover that really every major city had the same kind of licentious, the same kind of immorality and impurities in them. That the idolatry and the worship of sexual acts was part and parcel of that culture. It was, do what feels good. And don't worry about the consequences. And of course, we, as we study religious history, more and more we see that in many of the Gnostic cults, those cults that sprang up throughout the Middle East, blending aspects of Judaism and Greek philosophy and Greek religion together. And in so many of them, some of them became extraordinarily aesthetic, ascetic. Therefore, you had to beat and abuse and control every single kind of feeling and desire that you had in order to maintain and to, uh, to attain to divinity, so to speak, to attain to the knowledge that would let you escape your physical body. But many of them were all about licentiousness, that when you reached and attained that knowledge of salvation, so to speak, that knowledge of the reality behind the physical world, then it didn't matter because the physical world didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter what you did with your body. It didn't matter what kinds of acts you pursued or what kinds of greed you pursued or what kinds of things that you did. None of it mattered because all that mattered was your spirit. And if you had attained the proper knowledge, 
through whichever Gnostic cult you are a part of, whatever mystery religion you are a part of, then your spirit was good to go. Your spirit was clean and pure. And so what you did with your body was of no consequence in any way whatsoever. However, the understanding of just the Jewish world, the understanding of the Bible and Scripture itself is that the body does matter. Your body is part and parcel of who you are. God didn't create a spirit and then after the fact create a body to put Adam in. No, he created Adam from the dirt of the ground and then breathed life into him. He actually created the physical bodies that we indwell first before he gave us new life, before he gave us life in Adam. I've never thought about it like that before. That is how important the physical world is to God. So important that he created a body to place a fresh spirit in. He didn't create a spirit and then think, oh, well, I should create a body to put it in now. No, his intention was to create that physical body and then breathe life and create a spirit by putting life in that body that creates the spirit that goes on. And so the physical body is important. One of the things as Anglicans that I love, and especially, and it's true of all sacramental churches, that what happens physically can affect you spiritually. So much of my life prior to becoming Lutheran and then eventually becoming Anglican, the emphasis was on, well, the physical world doesn't really affect you spiritually. I don't think any of my pastors intended to convey that message. But oftentimes they accidentally did when they said, well, when it comes to worshiping God, it doesn't really matter what you do with your physical body in that regard. It doesn't matter if you bow your head or stand to pray or kneel to pray. None of those things really matter. It just matters what you do with your heart. But indirectly, they were also then saying what you do with your body doesn't matter, even though your body is of vast importance to the Father. Within a sacramental way of understanding Scripture, physical things affect the spiritual realm. That's why we believe that baptism can bring God's grace to an infant. That baptism can renew an infant's heart and give them faith because God has given those promises with baptism. The water being poured in the name of the Trinity is God's grace and His claiming and changing the position of that child before Him and anyone who is baptized. That's why we believe when we feast on this bread and wine that it is the body and blood of Christ mysteriously that God's promise through Jesus is that this is my body, this is my blood. And those physical things, those physical actions affect us spiritually. That is the crux of Paul's understanding here when he tells the Ephesians what to do, when he starts giving them directions about what to do with themselves physically as well as spiritually. Last week, St. Paul was telling us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That is, to look at Christ and walk as he walked. If Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, then how can we not, in response, give ourselves up for Christ and give ourselves up to Christ? Christ loved us, and that was the guiding principle of his life, that all that he did was to give himself up for us, to change us, to renew us, that he gave us the perfect example of self-sacrificial love by sacrificing himself for us. And so St. Paul, in chapter 
5 there, those first two verses, calls us to that same kind of self-sacrificial love. He calls us to give up ourselves, to become like Christ, because Christ has empowered us to do that. Of course, Paul isn't saying to go down a cross for other people's sins, but to because we can't do that, we're not God the Son. But he does call us to that self-sacrifice, to love others over and above ourselves. He calls us to a self-sacrifice that puts us into the light and not the self-indulgence of darkness. And so to walk in love is to walk in the light that Christ has shown upon us. And he shines that light by giving himself to us and calling us to give ourselves to him. And in doing that, calling us to be with him, we see various things happening in this text. The first thing that we see, you could say, is about being darkened, about being darkness, walking in darkness. Paul begins in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. St. Paul isn't mincing his words here. It seems like, well, this is a pretty compact statement. Let's just move on. But there's a lot in that statement. As I was saying, the culture of that day was all about licentiousness and libertine living and just doing what felt good. And so he says that kind of sexual immorality must not be anywhere in your life. It must not be named among the saints because it's not proper. It's not what God has called you to be. Sexual immorality is most foundationally described and defined as that which goes against the relationship that God has ordained in the covenant and the bond of marriage between a man and a woman. Any type of activity that occurs outside of that bond of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality and impurity. It goes against the way God created this world to be. He created Adam and Eve and brought them together to be one flesh. And in that union, they are together in God's eyes. God created sexual activity between husbands and wives to be a good for them, to produce life from them, to unite them together, as it says, to make them one flesh, a mysterious way of bringing a man and a woman together in that bond of marriage. God created it just as he created all things. One of the ways in which he brings new life into this world. It is the way of intimacy between a husband and a wife. And that is where God created it to be, between a husband and a wife and not outside of that. Because of the power that sexual activity has, the sexual desires have over us. It binds us together in such a way that we cannot fully understand it. But nonetheless, God gave it to us to bind us to bind husbands and wives together in an intimacy and a union that we cannot fully grasp. But then, will later Paul talk and say, reflects the reality of Christ in the church. And we'll get to that some next week, talking about how that is a reflection. But nonetheless, it's a gift. It's a gift, that relationship that exists between a husband and wife. It's a gift that God has given to them to have between themselves. And it's been forbidden to be used by others because that use is an abuse of God's good creation gift. And so as N.T. Wright says, to act casually about sexuality is to make a parody of God's gift to husbands and wives. 
It becomes a mockery of what God desires for us. It takes away from us all that God intends and places us far away from Him. This kind of casual activity, in fact, becomes a God. It's so powerful. And that's why Paul straight away here in this passage condemns it with such strong language. To pursue sexual immorality is to worship an idol, is to turn away from God Himself. And then with that use of impurity combined with sexual immorality, Paul is bringing the focus onto not just physical activity, but even the thoughts and desires of our very hearts. That impurity is something that makes us unclean. It is something working inside of us, desires that could lead us away from the proper use of God's good gifts. Thus, a desire for that sexual activity apart from the marital bond of husband and wife is forbidden. Even that desire is forbidden. It is an impurity that exists because sin exists in us to lead us away from God's creative acts, to lead us away from God's redemptive acts. And thus it becomes idolatry. It becomes idols as we pursue it, letting them become obsessions in our minds and our activities. And of course, as I said, this puts us up against our very culture because our culture has a libertine attitude toward all of these things. If it doesn't hurt someone else, it's perfectly fine to do. What well, does it matter what I do with my body if it's not harming anyone else? But it does harm someone. St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6 remind us that the sexually immoral person is sinning against his own body. He is turned to bring harm upon himself. When any of us pursue this kind of immorality, we are sinning against ourselves. We are sinning against our physical bodies and against our spirits. And those impurities will contaminate and take hold and lay hold of us more and more as we let it grow in our lives. And that is what Paul is saying to us right now. To not let that behavior be named amongst the people of God. That we are to be so radically different that we see what that is in and of itself. We see the reality that is going on in that passage. And so, St. Paul warns us to not walk in that path of darkness. And he goes on and switches gears slightly there at verse 4 about letting there be no foolishness nor foolish talk nor crude joking. They are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is another one of those passages It's like, wait, wait, Paul says no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. What's he, what's he talking about? Is he against good humor and joy? Is he all about just being this dour individual who doesn't care, who's too serious about life to laugh at anything? He's not that kind of person. He does enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy life. And here he is reminding us to not let there be filthiness in our thoughts, in our minds, or foolish talk, which could be described as the kind of talk and silly talk that comes from a drunkard or a fool, someone who's lost all inhibitions and just kind of just blathers away. That's what the foolish talk and filthiness is here. The sense of shame that comes from someone understanding God's constant presence with us. As our colleague for purity said, from whom no secrets are hid, all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our heart's intentions are before the Father at all times. And that's why we say cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. We confess that we need that cleansing because God sees what is broken within. He sees that we are broken creatures in need of redemption and salvation. 
And so St. Paul reminds us that we are not to have those things in our lives, that we are to turn away from them just as much as we turn away from the sexual immorality and impurity of the culture. We turn away from the filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking that comes out of culture. As I said, St. Paul isn't against good humor and telling jokes or being generally silly and happy amongst ourselves. He's talking about those things that will detract our thinking from God and His goodness or that make a mockery of His ordered creation. The crude joking there is this word that has a sense of someone who's just really witty and can turn on a dime with the conversation. And in this context, it's about someone who would take any conversation and suddenly just turn it to some off-color joke just to be silly and to embarrass people. And so that's why we translate it as crude joking, that, filly, that filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking are to be forbidden amongst God's people. They are unbecoming of those who've been renewed by the grace of God. And he gives us something else to do instead. Instead of crudeness, he tells us to turn our words and thoughts toward thanksgiving. Instead of quick-wittedness at the expense of others and God, we should learn to be quick-witted toward thanking God for the work that He has done in us, to thank Him for our friends and the family that we have with whom we enjoy our life together. Our actions and words and thoughts should be geared toward God's goodness as much as possible. And when they are not geared toward God, then we are given that opportunity to turn away from them again and to confess and to receive renewal and refreshment and forgiveness from the Father, that He is always at work here. And Paul will bring that up further down of what God is doing in our lives. But of course, walking this path of darkness has a result in our lives. Those who practice these things have no inheritance, Paul says. The sexually immoral or impure who is covetous, that is, an idolater, that is, all of these words being brought together reminding us that Paul is talking about this greediness that comes with these desires. The overwhelming nature of all of these desires makes us idolaters. And to become one like that is to have no part in the kingdom, to have no part in the future, and to have no part in the here and now. That that kingdom is left by us when we participate and when we pursue and when we make these a part and parcel of who we are. That we become rebellious, we enter into rebellion, and those who are rebels against God have no part in His kingdom. Just as rebels in any physical nation-state today would have no part in that state as it exists. They would be enemies of the state. And so, to rebel against what God has designed us to be in redemption is to rebel against His kingdom, against the kingdom that He has brought about, His gracious will and His gracious rule over our lives. And that graciousness is found in His renewal of our hearts and our minds, our hearts and our actions. The rebel is committed to misdeeds and not to God. The rebel wants their own way and not God's way of life. But that is not what we are called to. We are not called to live in darkness, but we are called to live in the light of the kingdom. And shifting forward, Paul tells us about that, being light and walking in the pathway of light. There in verse 7, he says, Do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Paul calls us to being light because we have been made light. Each and every one of us, as well as the Ephesians and everyone else who has ever lived at one time, was part of that darkness. 
They walked that path of darkness. They pursued that path of darkness of worshiping idols and rebelling against God. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, such were some of you, but no more. You were all once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We once all pursued darkness. We once all pursued that which was against God, but now we have been made light in the Lord. They were one thing and we were one thing and now we have been made another. And even more, we are not just walking in the light, but we are light itself. Christ is the light of the world and all who are united to him reflect that light and become light. That just as the sun reflects off of the moon, we become little moons that reflect the light of Christ that dwells within us, that has been placed within us and that comes from without, that comes from outside of us. God renews our hearts and then he reflects his glory and his light off of us into the world around us to shine light into the darkness, to change the reality of this world slowly and surely. We have been made light and we live in that light. We have become light in the Lord and children of light. And he says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The fruit of the light is good and true and glorious and beautiful. Because it has been, because it originates with God. For he is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so he comes and makes us light and drives the darkness out of us. And one day in the resurrection from the dead, we will see all of the darkness finally stripped away and driven out to no longer be tempted by that darkness, but to be fully and completely renewed in salvation with Jesus. And he has placed that goodness and that rightness and that trueness in us by making us light and that fruit will grow out of us as we discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And of course, the simplest way to determine the will of God is to look at his scripture, to look at his word to rest in the word that he has given us by his Holy Spirit. And the most compact statement of what God has created us to do in his will is the Ten Commandments, the cornerstone of all of our confirmation and all of our catechism for our behavior. To pray the Lord's Prayer is the cornerstone and foundation of our heart's love toward God. To know the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are the foundation of our thoughts and our thinking about God. And so all of those things together become the will of God, our, our ways of discerning more fully the will of God and understanding Scripture more and more, to know the Father through those things that He has given us. And in, discer and in discerning what is pleasing to God, we become visible. There in verse 11 through 14, he talks about, St. Paul tells us to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Notice that he calls them unfruitful works. He doesn't talk about the fruit of darkness because darkness doesn't produce fruit. It is unfruitful and those works are dead. But with the light of the Lord shining down, it exposes them. It exposes what is in us and exposes what is around us. And that is what the light of the Lord does for us. It reveals the world around it, reveals the sin in us and the sin around us, the sin that comes forth out of us so that it can be exposed by the light more and more and become visible and thus put to death and changed and turned away from so that 
it becomes light so that our hearts become light more and more. As we walk in the light, the light shines on us and exposes more and more of the darkness within in order that it would be revealed because God already knows it and so he reveals it to us more and more that we would more and more turn from it and know what it is to be visible before the Father and to enter into that gracious presence because his light isn't there to condemn us. It is there to call us forth into the light that we would be light. That is the grace of God for us that Paul is revealing that he has made us light and calls us forth to be visible before him and to rest and to rejoice in the light of the glory of the Lord. And Paul concludes our section here today with this strange and unique hymn-like words, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Our being visible means that Christ will shine upon us. And many people have tried to figure out where this little snippet of a passage comes from. Many have thought that it's probably lifted from Isaiah 6, chapter 60, verse 1, where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That is a paraphrase and a hymnic way of saying that, that this is possibly from an early Christian hymn. It's a calling for the people to wake up, and in their waking up they will rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. The beautiful part of that is, if this is an allusion to Isaiah 60, verse 1, when it says Christ will shine upon you, that's where Isaiah said the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The glory of the Lord has come upon you. That these writers put Christ in the place of Yahweh, recognizing his full divinity, recognizing the reality that Christ is the Son of God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that if Christ is shining on you, the glory of the Lord is shining upon you. And so we are called to awake. For Paul is saying this to the Ephesians, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Continue turning away from the deeds of the world. Continue turning away from the wickedness and the darkness that you were once part of because you have been made light. You have been called to walk in love and to walk in light because Christ has changed you and made you his own. And so awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. And this brings us back to our collect of the day. Keep your church, O Lord, by your perpetual mercy, and because without you, the frailty of our nature causes us to fall. We are frail creatures by nature in and of ourselves. And so, with Paul's warning here to not pursue the ways of the world, to not go back to the darkness we were once part of, we recognize that our nature causes us to fall because it is frail because of sin. And so we pray to keep us from all things hurtful and to lead us to all things profitable for our salvation. May this be our prayer evermore, knowing that we have been brought into the light and made light in the Lord, that Christ is shining upon us, that we would more and more be his light and be light in him and to be children of light. And so rejoice, O church, for Christ has made you new. He has called you out of darkness and into his own light to make you like him, to make you an imitator of him. So embrace the work of the Lord in you and turn more and more toward the light and away from the darkness that exists in us and to cry out for mercy that the frailty of our natures would no longer cause us to fall, but that we would be kept from those hurtful things and that we would be led into all things profitable 
for our salvation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.